Good morning, Gateway. It's really lovely to see you all this morning now. <laughs> Super excited to be baptizing Ads and Abby this morning. Just brilliant. We'll say more about that uh, later on, but suffice to say, we're just super excited about that. As John said, this is uh, now week three of our preaching series. We're working through the Old Testament, and uh, last week, many of you may remember, we covered the story of God and man, which is what the Bible's all about, between the Garden of Eden and the great flood of Noah that wiped out creation and what that means for us and the context to what we're teaching in this series and what we're trying to kind of draw out is the consistent and unfailing plan of God throughout all of history, including today, that God is always gathering a people to love and who will love him and how he's working through all of history, all the events and circumstances in history and in your life to create a, a house for his name, a place where God and man can dwell together. Stretch of scripture we're looking at today covers uh, Genesis 11 to Genesis 35. That's another few hundred years that we've somehow got to cover in the next half an hour. And uh, this period of history is bookended by two significant accounts of God and his relationship with man. Uh, in a place called Babel, where man tries to build a tower that reaches the heavens to reach God, and a place called Bethel, where God inverts that tower by coming down to reach man from heaven. And of course, that God comes down to meet with us and commune with us. The, the fact that we can know God, that you and I can know God and be known by God and be in relationship with him and meet with him is at the heart of the gospel. So hopefully we'll pick out some of those themes this morning too. Right, there's a lot to get through today, so let's get straight to it. Let's start by picking out the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Last week, as I said, we finished with the great flood that wipes out humanity, and that's because... If you remember, it says in the Bible that God realized that every inclination of the human heart is to ignore God by going our own way, to exalt ourselves and protect ourselves and satisfy ourselves. That's the deeply held inclination of the human heart. That's what we saw in Eden last week when Eve trusted more in what she could see and her own reasoning when she ate from the forbidden tree instead of trusting in God and walking by faith. And we said that this walking by what we can see instead of by faith in what God has said, that's the very anatomy of sin. Every time you sin, every time we see sin in the world, it's a declaration of what I see and reason is better than what God has said. And so the great flood is, in that sense, God's judgment on humanity. And uh, this is a humanity that's completely thrown off restraint, thrown off God, if you like. And the flood comes and serves both as a judgment on mankind, but also as a kind of watershed between one world and another. And actually, there is a reference here, as oblique as it is, to what we're doing today as we baptize Ads and Abby. As they go under the water, they are symbolically saying that we die to the old self. That old self is gone, and they rise up out of the water. They rise to new life in Jesus. That's why Christians talk about being born again. So too, the baptism of the flood. One world dies, and another world rises up. And we pick up the story here today to see how it's going for mankind. So let's read together from Genesis 11. This is verse 1 to 9. 
It says, now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Then they said, come, let us build a city. Let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language. They will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. That's why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Last week, we saw how God made mankind in his image to represent him in the world and to multiply throughout the earth by calling in others and creating more image bearers throughout the earth. That's the commission on us as followers of God. Today, we see a people who do the exact opposite. Instead of exalting God and representing God, they say, let's build this magnificent tower that reaches to the heavens. Why? so that we might make a name for ourselves. Why? So that we don't get scattered over the whole earth. God says, bear my image and exalt me and multiply. Man says, I'm going to exalt me and stay put. There's a significant warning for us already in the story. Babel, which is the Old Testament uh, way of talking about Babylon. It's the same place, which we'll hear much more about as we work through the Bible. Suffice to say that Babylon is never spoken about positively. It means gate of God. That's what mankind thought this tower-building project was. It's an entry for, to greatness, a, a way for man to show himself like a god. He's trying to grasp back the fruits that he missed out on in the garden. Babel is a kind of archetypal event representing the pride of man. What they're trying to do is reestablish the Garden of Eden, where God and man met face to face. But this is a house built in rebellion, since they want to reach the heavens and become famous. It's easy to look at these stories, particularly in Genesis, as the folly of a primitive people. But I, I challenge you this week, have a look around, listen to the news, watch advertising, read what you see on social media, it's what people are buying and doing and saying of themselves in 21st century Britain. It's, it's the same story. It's self-exaltation, it's self-promotion, it's self-protection, walking very often like Adam and Eve did by sight instead of faith, trying to build a tower that reaches the heavens and be like God instead of doing what God tells us is right. Image me, be like me, represent me. Call others in, live by faith in my word and in my ways. In the past few days, you may have heard about the metaverse. I don't know, maybe you've watched the news. Facebook have brought this into the mainstream by uh, rebranding themselves as meta. I'm not inherently against this at all. I'm more of a, a kind of a neutral bystander at this point. But what they are doing is they are hedging their bets 
on the next evolutionary stage of the internet, which most of the industry think will be called the metaverse. And the reason I bring this up this morning is for a number of reasons we'll talk about in a moment. But at the point of any industrial or technological revolution, there's an effect on society. And so we need to have our eyes open to this and uh, just be aware of this. And I'm sure that there will be much to commend the metaverse. The baseline principle of the metaverse is that people will be increasingly able to live wearing, you know, through technology and wearing helmets and goggles and suits and stuff like that in a virtual world. And in that virtual world, you can do and be whatever you want. If you want to be a cat or a bodybuilder or a six-year-old girl, then you can. And you'll be able to make money in the metaverse and buy things in the metaverse and explore the virtual world. You can explore the virtual world at any point in history. If you fancy having cocktails in ancient Rome, well, you slip into the metaverse when you get home from work and off you go. And you can be whatever you want in the metaverse and do whatever you want in the metaverse. That's the basic principle of what technologists are trying to achieve next. We'll hear much more about this in the years to come. Now, as I said, I'm, I'm fairly agnostic about what this means for humanity, although at this point I'm more cautious than optimistic, and I hope that I'm proven wrong. But what we're seeing here, fully on display, is man's innate desire to connect with the transcendent, with something other, a world not like this one. That's because we are built for transcendence and otherness. We are built for God and for eternity. That's a good thing. But as with so many of our motivations, we also have to be very careful here as well. There's a little slight smell of Babel about some of this stuff, us creating a, a giant tower to self-satisfy and self-protect and self-identify and to say, look what we've done, look what we've made. I don't need God, I've got me. And look at the humor of what happens next. Man tries to build a tower to reach God. And in verse 5 we read, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. So far beneath the glory of God is this tower that it says that God had to come down to inspect it. We can build whatever we want to. Money, popularity, power, the metaverse, but none of it will make us like God and none of it will help us to reach God. There is only one way to reach God. And as we'll see as we work through these passages this morning, it's by God coming down to reach us as an act of kindness, which he's done through Jesus. We'll see more of that this morning, as I said. Remember, the word Babylon means gate of God. That's what they tried to build. But what they achieved is Babel. That word means confusion and scattering. They try to build something to avoid the instruction of God to scatter and fill up the earth. And look what happens in verse 8. So the Lord scattered them from there over the earth, and they stopped building the city. They opposed God with their plans, and just like in the garden, it gets a whole lot worse for them. Straight after this event in Genesis 12, God calls Abram, and this is actually a really significant turning point in the whole narrative of the Old Testament. In fact, what happens between God and Abram, or Abraham, as he will come to be known, actually explains the, the rest of the whole Bible narrative and the whole of human history. Abram was just an ordinary man getting about his business. He had 
nothing to base any real knowledge of God on, no scriptures, he wasn't a holy man, just an ordinary man, ordinary person like you and I. But remember, God is always about finding a people for himself and gathering a people for himself to love, and he's always looking for a people with whom he can dwell and to create a house for his name. So he comes to this man, Abram, and he calls him, and he makes him one of the most remarkable promises you'll ever read about. This is Genesis 12, verse 1 to 4. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. Let's look at what's happening here. God is once again calling one man, an ordinary man, with a heart open to the purposes of God, through whom he will bring all creation back to him. Abram has promised that he will become the father of a great nation. That nation will someday be Israel, the people of God. And through this nation, the whole earth will be blessed. And the rest of the Bible is about that promise being fulfilled. Note this. At Babel, man tries to make his name great. But through God, Abram is told that his name will be made great. At Babel, man tries to unite the whole world in their power, and they end up being scattered. But through God, Abram is told that he will be the father of a great nation. And so God is with Abram and does him good and blesses him and multiplies him. And the plan for God to have a people for himself who he can love and with whom he can dwells continues. In later years, as an old man, he's in his 80s at this point, Abram starts to worry. God has promised to make him the father of a a mighty nation through whom the whole world will be blessed. But he's now in his mid-80s and he doesn't even actually have a son of his own. Talk about needing to exercise faith in God and trusting in what he says rather than what you see. And God comes to him and he speaks tenderly to him and he says to him, note these words because God says this to us, his people, even today. This is Genesis 15 verse 1. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Just going to pause the story for a moment it's uh, easy to read over the, some of the stuff and think that it's about other people and miss that this is our story too. You may need to hear that again today, especially if you're facing a battle of some sort or you're facing anxiety or a mountain. God says to his people, to you, do not be afraid. I'm near. I will fight for you. I am all you need. I am your shield, your very great reward. And God demonstrates this to this man, Abram, this ordinary man who he's picked out and made an incredible promise to. And he reiterates the promise again. And he says, my promises are good. I always do what I say. Genesis 15, verse 4 to 7. Then the word of the Lord came to him. A son who is your own flesh and blood. This is a man in his 80s. Will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can even count them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, 
and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. There's a model here for how God works with us and what he looks for as a response. He speaks, he makes promises over his people. The Bible is full of them for you. And no matter how unlikely it might seem, no matter what the pressures you're facing, he is always good to his word. And what he looks for is a people who will believe him, a people who will walk by faith and not by sight. Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. If you are still waiting for the fulfillment of a long-held promise or words of God over you, take your stand in them again today. He's your shield, your very great reward, and he always makes a way for his people. Let's revisit how he promises to do that for Abram. God has promised Abram that, verse 15, Chapter 15, verse 4, you will have an heir. His name will be Isaac. And therefore, verse 5, you will multiply like the stars in the sky. And verse 7, I will give you a land to take possession of. Look at how God is working through events to maintain the plan, to gather a people, to have a people, and to build a house. The command to Adam and Eve in the garden is to be fruitful And now, it's a covenant promise. God says, I will make you fruitful. The command in the garden to multiply is now a promise. God says, I will build your household. God is building a new Eden, a dwelling place for man and God. Abram doesn't know it yet, but that land will be Israel, a land of God's provision within which one day there will be a new garden, meeting place where man and God meet. That garden will be the temple. And when we get to those passages in a few weeks' time, you'll see how God's instructions for how the temple is to be built includes carvings and pictures of all sorts of trees and fruit. And it's literally supposed to be like a garden because the garden was where man and God were supposed to meet and commune. And God has promised throughout all of history to build a house, a place for man and God to meet. He's with you. His eyes are on you. His hand of favor is over you. He will make a way for you. Take confidence in that from the story of Abram and what happens next. We get to Genesis 17, verse 5. God says to Abram, No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you, the whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner. I will give you that as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. There is a consistent promise here that God is making a way to reconnect heaven and earth, to reconnect man and God, not through the efforts of mankind like at Babel, but through a work of God himself. And God will build that connection in the land, and he will build that connection through ordinary people like Abraham and Isaac and you and I. The plan is back on track for God to build a house for his name. That's what this whole series is about. 
And God renames Abram, Abraham. Abraham. Abram means exalted father. This was always his destiny. And now God upgrades the calling by calling him Abraham, which means father of a multitude. There's a really sharp juxtaposition, I don't know if you're noticing this, between what God is doing here in light of what mankind did at Babel. And actually, when I was preparing this this week and praying about this, I actually caught myself thinking about what we're doing here with our building project and to always keep central to that, that what we're doing here is not building a name for ourselves, but a house for God's name and for his purposes and to, like Abram's descendants, be a blessing to the whole earth. We don't want to try and build Babel and try and make a name for ourselves. In fact, what we want to do is what actually happens next in the story of Abraham and his people. This whole part of the story spans Genesis 28 to 35 and involves Abraham's grandson, Jacob. Jacob, Jacob is, the, uh, is the son of Isaac, who himself was the promised son of Abraham. And from day one, Jacob proves to be a, a really tricky character. On paper, you may not choose to build your people and the entire nation of Israel through Jacob, but we only have to look at ourselves today to note the kind of person that God uses and loves. Ordinary, sometimes broken, sometimes with dodgy backgrounds, just normal people like you and I. But God sees through all that stuff to a heart that will say yes to him. And so it is with Jacob. Now, Jacob, it says, comes out of the womb, literally grasping onto, holding onto his brother Esau's heel. The name Jacob itself, depending on how it's used in the Hebrew, actually means he who grasps the heel. Or it can also mean usurper. So you might interpret it as someone who takes what isn't his to take. And the first part of Jacob's life is actually characterized by exactly that sort of behavior. He starts off by stealing his brother's inheritance. He tricks his dad, Isaac, into giving him a birthright that belongs to his brother Esau. And of course, Esau's mad about this. He wants to kill Jacob now. So Jacob flees. And as he's in mid-flight, he comes to a place called Bethel. And an odd thing happens at Bethel that will characterize much of the rest of Jacob's life and will be a theme that we once again see coming up again and again throughout Scripture. And it will in many ways culminate thousands of years later in Jesus. Jacob's exhausted from fleeing. And so when he arrives in Bethel with literally nothing but the clothes on his back, he takes a stone as a pillow and he lies down and he goes to sleep and he has a dream. Let's read about that dream in Genesis 28, verse 11 to 17. It says, when Jacob reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. Sound familiar? And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you're lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid, as I'm sure we all would be, and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. 
Listen to this. This is the gate of heaven. Now, there are some theological principles that I want to draw out here, and there's some really fun stuff to consider as we do so, as we think about what we've heard so far. Now, if you think about, firstly, what's happening back in Babel, mankind is building a tower to try and reach heaven, and the place is called Babylon, the gate of God. Now, here in Bethel, what's happening God has inverted the whole story. Here, the tower reaches from heaven down to earth. God reaches down to mankind. And it is in this place that he reiterates that Abraham promised to his son, his grandson Jacob. And Jacob explains, surely this is the gate of heaven. Okay, I'm going to go a bit deeper now. So please bear with me. I'm going to make us all work a little bit harder than usual today. So listen up and you can take a nap when you get home. Maybe you'll have a... Dream like Jacob, if you're lucky. (laughs) Throughout all of Scripture, Babylon is used as the byword for all that stands against God. It starts with the Tower of Babel as man sets himself up against God in direct rebellion. And what we'll see for the rest of the Bible is this place, Babylon. It's a city that will oppose God. It will oppose his people and stand for all that is anti-God. And one of the things that we see in the book of Revelation right at the end of Scripture is that in the last days, the struggle between God and Satan is like a battle between Jerusalem or Zion, which represents God, and Babylon, which represents Satan and all that he's about, which is why in Revelation 18 we hear that Babylon is destroyed by God. And in Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem is established as the final house that God builds for his name, where he will dwell with his people forever. And between now and then, the call on us, the people of God, is to oppose Babylon. In every generation, there is a Babylon that we must oppose and avoid. And Babylon is always at it, in our ears, tempting us, luring us towards her with promises of wealth and power and satisfaction, things that can only ever be found in God. On some occasions in Scripture, therefore, she's referred to as a harlot, one who tries to kind of tempt us away from God. I like to think about this using a a wedding metaphor. The, The church is the bride of Christ. We're walking down the wedding aisle. That's what we're doing through history to meet our bridegroom, Jesus. And sitting on the sidelines is this harlot, Babylon. And she's always saying, Come away with me. I've got what you need. I've got everything you need. Don't go with him. And our job is to stay on the wedding aisle, keep our eyes fixed on the bridegroom. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and do not get swayed by Babylon. That's exactly why the people of Babel built a tower. They took their eyes off what God was doing and they went straight on to what Babylon promises. You don't need him. You can be your own God. And what I've said up here many, many times and will continue to is that when we do that, it just never works out well for us. It's what Satan says, I can be like God. Why does he get all the glory? It's what he convinces Eve in the garden. Did God really say that? Listen to me instead. Babylon is everything that God isn't because it's built like a tower trying to reach the heavens out of human pride. And there's one thing that God cannot stand. It's that. Because it says, no thanks, God. I've got this one covered, which flies in the face 
of who he is and what Jesus has done for us as an act of extraordinary grace by dying on the cross for us to fix what we have broken. James 4 verse 6 tells us that it is within God. It's his very nature that he gives us more grace. God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Maybe that's why God chose Abram. I don't know. Maybe he's not looking for great leadership skills or qualifications. In fact, I know he's not. But he is always looking for a heart that is humble enough to say, I need saving. I need God. I can't do it myself. Send me. That's essentially what Ads and Abby are declaring today. I need God. I'm going to live for that. Send me. At Babel, at Bethel, God shows this exact grace and favor. And he sets the scene for how things will be. He inverts Babel and he comes down to meet with man. And that is in itself the gospel story, as we'll discover in just a moment. At Babel, man says, we've created a gate to heaven. That's what Babylon always does. Tries to lure us away by lying and tempting and trying to tell you that you can be like a god. I don't know, maybe that's one of the options that will be available to you one day in the metaverse. But at Bethel, God reveals himself to Jacob, and Jacob realizes that this is the true gate of heaven. Heaven is revealed because God stoops down to us in our plight. Sometimes just like Jacob, who brings nothing to the party except a dodgy past and a broken spirit. That's the God that we follow That's grace. We get what we don't deserve. God fulfills his promise to Abraham. He fulfills his promise to Jacob to bless and to grow him. He fulfills his plan from Eden to have a people and a place for himself, people to love, a place to dwell with them. And some years later, Jacob will again meet with God. And on this occasion, God and Jacob kind of get into a wrestling match. And Jacob struggles with God, the story tells us. And that just before the end of the struggle, which lasts for hours, Jacob says to God, please, before you go, will you bless me? And God says in Genesis 32, verse 28, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans, and you've overcome. Jacob's whole life has been a struggle of his own making, tricking and lying and ducking and diving, fleeing from pain and judgment until God catches up with him. And all the struggles and all the strivings are personified in this episode where God teaches him that struggle and striving is to be done with God, not against him. And in that place, God renames him Israel. Adam and Eve... Noah and Mrs. Noah, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, and now Jacob, or Israel, as he will be known. God working through ordinary folk, throughout all events and situations, to bring about his plan to build a house for his name, a place where he and his people will dwell together. And what we see here as history is unfolding is that this place will be the land which one day the descendants of Abraham will inherit as was promised. And this place and those people will be called Israel, those who strive with God. 
Years later, we read in Genesis 35, Jacob once again returns to Bethel with his family. Most of Jacob's life story happened between these two visits to Bethel, and there in the second visit, this time Jacob goes there to set up a place of worship, a place where God and man can meet. And God says to Jacob again, if you just think back to last week, if you remember the original command God gave Adam in the garden, you'll recognize these words. God says to Jacob, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will be among your descendants. Keep your eye on that verse as we work through this series. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will also give to you, and I will give this land to your descendants after you. Okay, take a deep breath. We've worked really hard so far this morning. Let's think about how we apply all of this stuff today. Firstly, at Bethel, where Jacob sees this ramp to heaven, the stairway, God reveals his answer to Babel, that he will build a way to reconnect heaven and earth. He will build it in the land, and he will build it through ordinary folks like us, like Jacob. Later on, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will come to bridge the gap between heaven and earth fully. His name will be Jesus. In John 1, Jesus meets a man named Nathaniel. Nathaniel will become one of the 12 disciples. And as they meet, Nathaniel says to him, Teacher, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Listen to how Jesus responds in John 1, verse 51. He said, Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on me. Isn't that what Jacob saw? A connection between heaven and earth with angels ascending and descending at the top of it. And above that, God. Jesus is saying, now I am that connection. You come to God through me. It's here where I am that heaven touches earth. For us, that is huge. Because if you are a follower of Christ, it says that you are in Christ, and he is in you. He dwells in you. We can come to God any time because of and through Jesus, who on the cross has made that possible. The plan is on track. God is still calling a people for himself, and it is here with us, his people, that he dwells. And for anyone who's yet to know him, look at what he has said about himself. I am the ramp, the ladder, the stairway that connects God and man. I have made a way for you to know God. Secondly, beware Babylon. She's a seductress and she's alluring, but Babylon and all that she stands for is destroyed at the end of the story, and all who oppose her and resist her and overcome her are counted in the Lamb's book of life and will inherit heaven. And lastly, and I'm praying that this will give you confidence in your bones, the promise that God gave to Abraham, you're a child of that promise. That through one man, a blessed people will multiply in the earth and through whom the whole earth will be blessed. That's the church. That's what God started doing all the way back when he first called Abram out of his hometown in Genesis 12. He was calling out a people 
That's what the word church means. It's a Greek word, ecclesia. It means to call out. That's what we are. We're called out by God. Galatians 3.7 tells us this. Understand, those who have faith are children of Abraham. You do not need to be in the physical bloodline of Abraham. If you have faith in Christ, so far as God sees it, you are a child of Abraham and therefore counted in his called out people, a people that God has, is, and always will be gathering to love and who will love him. That's what this is all about. And that promise is yours for the taking today. You just need say yes to Jesus. Genesis 1, from our very earliest days to Revelation 22, which speaks of a point in history that is yet to happen. It all holds together. God is calling a people for his name to love and who will love him and to dwell with them. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this incredible story that you have given us that we've seen today that the way scripture holds together it's not isolated events but it tells the story of a father who loves his creation and will do what is necessary to help us when we mess it up and break it and you did that by sending Jesus who now makes a way for ordinary folk like us to know you Jesus, we thank you for your death and sacrifice on the cross. We thank you that your blood shed is not just a historical event 2,000 years ago. It is a history, cosmic, affecting, changing moment that makes possible us to know you, to be in relationship with you, and gives us hope and future and destiny with you. And for that, we are ever so grateful. Lord, I pray that that would just kind of get into us, that would get into our bones, that would be the paradigm through how we see the world, circumstances and situations. God, I pray that for every person in this room, and I pray that as you do that, you'll be glorified and lifted up. Amen.